I want to direct you to Matthew chapter 17, verse 24. And we'll be examining together these four verses this morning, verses 24 through 27. When they came to Capernaum, those who collected the two drachma tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect taxes? Customs or poll tax, from their sons or from strangers? Then Peter said, from strangers. Jesus said to him, then the sons are exempt. However, so that we do not offend them, go to the sea and throw in a hook and take the first fish that comes up And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for you and me. Amen. This is God's word. We need to pray because we need help understanding what on earth Peter putting a hook in the Sea of Galilee, getting a fish with a coin in its mouth has to do with us. So let's pray and ask for God's help and insight. We thank you, God, for every portion of your word, every part, those parts that are more plain, more clear, those parts that are maybe on the surface a little more challenging for us. We come this morning to a portion of your word that is is curious to us, and we pray that your Holy Spirit will take what is at first perhaps a little foreign, a little different curious and you will make it clear and plain that we may know our savior jesus christ and honor him in his name amen well it was such a privilege uh, a little over a week ago to be in california with over three thousand other pastors from around the country and around the world at a, the shepherds conference at grace community church and such a focus on the preaching of the Word of God and being unashamed in the preaching of the Word of God. And, of course, it's a restful time, but it also fires you up and uh, uh, to come back and to preach. So thankful for Tom's opening of the Word of God, yes, last Sunday morning. And so as I came to study for this Sunday and thinking, okay, now where are we in the Gospel of Matthew? We've been just working through the Gospel of Matthew now for a while and where are we at? What's the text I'm going to be looking at? And, and I sat down and I read this earlier in the week and I thought, huh. I don't know if this sounds very reverent, but what am I going to do with that? <laughs> How am I going to preach that? And it's challenging. It's, it is a unique passage recorded only here in the Gospel of Matthew among the Gospels. Um, it seems somewhat out of place. We've just had the the in the beginning of chapter 17, the account of the transfiguration of the glory of Jesus being made known to the disciples. And we've had the casting out of a demon and, and Jesus sharing with his disciples in verses 22 and 23 that the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day and they were deeply grieved. We're, we're focusing on the 
transfiguration, the glory of Christ, the, the power of Christ, the King, the coming suffering, death, and resurrection of the King. And then we come to this passage that's about seemingly taxes and, and a fish and a coin in its mouth. And, and then we move on to this passage in chapter 18 about who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Verses 24 through 27 seem on the surface to me at least, upon first glance, maybe to you, is a little bit out of place. Interesting, curious, but not so clear as to what is the point. Why are these words here? How does this passage fit with the Gospel of Matthew? How does this passage fit with our lives? I mean... All God's word is relevant. So there must be something here for us. This is the word of God. What are we to make of this? Well, so that there is hopefully some clarity in this sermon, I want to state to you up front what I think is the dominant truth we learn in this passage. And if you're taking notes, I'm going to warn you, this is not a short sentence. It's long. It has a couple phrases. And if you're looking for a clear outline this morning, you're not going to have, sorry, three neat points. I'm going to state what I think is the main idea, the big, big idea. And then I'm going to take you in the rest of this sermon through the process of how I think we arrive there. And I hope it's not of my choosing, of my making. I think that is the placement of this passage. And what is here is to tell us something about Jesus, about the Son of God. Some commentators talk a lot about whether we should pay taxes to the government, and there's lessons here about that and so forth. That, um, this actually isn't a government tax. This is actually a tax that God instituted. So here's the main idea. You ready? The Son of God who has nothing of his own to atone for, identifies with and provides for his people who have much to atone for and nothing with which to pay. Let me read that again. The Son of God who has nothing of his own to atone for, identifies with and provides for his people. His people who have much to atone for and nothing with which to pay. I think that's what we learn here. Whenever we come to a a passage or a portion of the Bible that is challenging to us, or we're wondering, why is this here? What is the Holy Spirit wanting to teach us? The first and primary thing we always must do after we have prayed is start reading around the passage. Trust that the Holy Spirit, who is ultimately the author of the Gospel of Matthew, placed this little account here for a reason. 
And the reason was not just, well, I've got to fit that in there somewhere. So the end of chapter 17 looks like a good spot. You know, I I want this little episode about the fish and the coin and the hook. So I'll just plop it there. No, I, I might write a book that way, but not the Holy Spirit. So it's intentional. It's here for a reason. And first, then, we want to pay attention to the context. What is around both before and after this particular passage, verses 24 through 27? As I've already stated, I want to remind you that chapter 17 begins with this revelation of the glory of Jesus, that he is not merely Jesus of Nazareth, he is, but that he is not only a man, he is the Son of God, he is divine. Chapter 17, verse 2, we are told that Jesus was transfigured before Peter, James, and John, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. In this part of the Gospel of Matthew, the Holy Spirit is is emphasizing that this is no mere man. This is not just another teacher. This is not just another prophet. This is the prophet. This is the Son of God. In fact, God himself says to Peter, James, and John, he says, verse 5 of chapter 17, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. He is the son. He is the glorious son. He is the father's beloved son. He's not adopted. He's not brought into the family from afar. He is the unique, only begotten, beloved son of the living God. In verse 12, he's told his disciples that he is going to the Son of Man. There's another divine messianic title. The Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. And then again in chapter 17, as I've already read in verse 22, as they come into Galilee, this is Peter's hometown area, Jesus' hometown area, north, northern Israel. Jesus is again telling his disciples, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and they will be, he will be raised on the third day. And they were deeply grieved. They don't believe the resurrection, apparently. They're not getting it. This plan of suffering, this is not in their plan. The Messiah comes in their plan. He kicks the Romans out. He rules. They know the Messiah. They sit near him. Their plan for the kingdom doesn't involve any kind of suffering of Jesus. Even even if he tells them he'll be raised on the third day, that doesn't impress them. They're still grieved because Jesus doesn't seem to get the plan. And then in chapter 18, on the other side of our passage this morning... Verse 1, at that time the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So all around our passage, chapter 17, verses 24 to 27, we have verses in which the Holy Spirit is directing us to the true identity of Jesus 
and the identity of the disciples. Jesus knows who he is. No confusion, no doubt, no anxiety. He knows who he is. He knows he is the beloved son. He enjoys communion with the father. He knows who he is. But his disciples don't know who they are. They don't grasp who they are. And they don't even grasp fully who he is. But in regards to themselves, they don't understand that they are needing atonement. They don't get it. They don't know how needy they are. And they do not understand that they need atonement. Some clues? The fact that they're grieved. When Jesus tells them that he's going to Jerusalem, he's going to be delivered, that he will be killed, that he will be raised on the third day. I mean, you think he's, he's saying, I'm, yes, I'm going to Jerusalem. Yes, I'm going to suffer. Yes, I'm going to die. But I'm going to rise from the dead on the third day. And they were deeply grieved. What? Maybe they just don't believe him. But perhaps more likely is they clearly don't understand that unless Jesus does this, They cannot enter the kingdom. They need Jesus to die for them, to be buried for them, to rise for them. And this isn't the first time. These are good Jewish boys. They've been raised in the synagogue. They've heard the book of Isaiah read. And Isaiah 53, at least there and other numerous passages, it was clearly foretold that the Messiah would necessarily suffer, die, to provide justification for the sins of his people. But the disciples don't get it. They don't understand that they need atonement. That's the first movement, if you will, in our task of understanding what the passage is about. This is about identity, who Jesus is and who we are. We are needing atonement, all of us. Next, I want to ask a very basic question. In chapter 17, verse 24, when they came to Capernaum, Peter's hometown, right on the northern part there of the Lake of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, those who collect the two drachma tax came to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? Which for us, we're wondering, what's the two drachma tax? It's tax season, right? We've got taxes, some of us, on our minds. Some of us are thinking, oh boy, I still had to pull together all my stuff, get it in, it's really running down to the wire. So it's tax season, We know about taxes, but what is this two drachma tax? IRS comes up with all kinds of stuff, but we haven't heard of this one. Well, in order to understand what this two drachma tax, as I've already stated, it wasn't a Roman tax. This wasn't the Roman Empire taxing the Jews. They had numerous other taxes, but that wasn't this tax. This wasn't Herod's tax. This actually was a tax 
instituted by God for the people of Israel in Exodus chapter 30. And I invite you to turn there with me if you want to and look at Exodus chapter 30, verse 12 through 14. Exodus 30, we can begin in verse 11. The Lord also spoke to Moses, saying, When you take a census of the sons of Israel to number them, then each one of them shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord. When you number them, so that there will be no plague among them when you number them. This is what everyone who is numbered shall give, Half a shekel, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, the shekel is 20 geras, half a shekel as a contribution to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered from 20 years old and over shall give the contribution to the Lord. The rich shall not pay more, and the poor shall not pay less than the half shekel. When you give the contribution to the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. Every Jewish man was required by God to pay this tax. This is a, you can call it a temple tax, if you will. But the tax was not primarily practical. It, it was practical. It did provide for the, the provisions of the worship of God in the tabernacle, later in the temple, so... Yes, it was part of the Jews' offering and for the provision of the worship of God, but it was not primarily, as you listen there, it was not primarily pragmatic, practical. God's looking to raise funds, you know, to keep the heat on or the AC in Jerusalem. It was not primarily practical. It was primarily, primarily theological. Theological. We're not used to hearing about a tax that has to do with atonement. But that's what Jesus, what God rather says, that's about. That's why it wasn't any different whether you were rich or poor. Everyone was leveled. Everyone paid the same thing. Why? Because everyone was in the same condition, needing to make atonement for themselves. Now, this wasn't the only atonement offering. Obviously, there was the shedding of blood and and so forth and the sacrificial system, but there was this annual temple tax, this annual contribution by which the men of Israel acknowledged that they needed atonement. It wasn't the only way. But here's the point. We are not by nature, we do not rather, we do not by nature have the right to be associated with the Holy One or worship Him. We do not have the right by our nature to be associated with the Holy One of Israel and worship Him. Have you ever thought of that? We, we, we talk about, am I going to church today? Am I going to worship today? How was the worship today? Did I like the service today? But has it ever occurred to us that actually it is by grace that I even am invited by God to worship him? 
Because I don't even have a right to worship him. Oh, yes, by nature of being made in the image of God, I have the responsibility. But as one who is born with a sinful nature and who has sinned against God, I have no right to be associated in any way, shape, or form with this holy God. I am a stranger. And so are you. Jew, Gentile. Even the Jewish men who are brought near by God, Israel chosen from among the nations of the earth, this temple tax was a reminder, it was supposed to be a reminder to help the men and the women remember that just being born a Jew didn't give you the right to be associated with the Holy One of Israel. And so the two drachma tax is, is about much more than merely the upkeep of the church building, the temple in Jerusalem. It has its origin all the way back in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant law. And it has to do with worship. To worship God is not a right. It is a privilege. To worship God is not a right. It is a privilege that we can even worship him. And our worship of God must be atoned for. For none of us offers to God the worship in and of ourselves that is pleasing and acceptable in his sight. We are needing atonement. And so were the disciples. Well, thirdly, as we move to, and I'll come back and I'll restate the main idea here at the close of this message. We've considered the context. We've considered the question, what is this two drachma tax? Now I want to look more specifically at the scene. Uh, They come back to their hometown. Why the tax collectors come to Peter? We don't know why they don't just go to Jesus, but they ask Peter in verse 24, does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? I don't know if this is a, this is a charge or, you know, we don't want to read too much into it, but Peter's been around Jesus long enough that Peter knows the answer. Yes, he pays. In other words, he is a law abiding Jewish man. He keeps the law. Jesus had stated in Matthew chapter 5 that he did not come to abolish the law and that anyone who taught others to do away with the least part of the law would be guilty of great sin. Jesus was a perfect law keeper. He knew Exodus 30. He was a Jewish man, and he kept the law. And yet, there's more we learn here about Jesus. When Peter returns back to the house, maybe Jesus was staying. This might have been Peter's house, and Jesus is staying there. And Peter comes back to the house, and, and Jesus apparently wasn't there when Peter received the question. And when he gets back to the house, he, Jesus says to 
Peter, verse 25, what do you think, Simon? He asks him a question. In other words, Jesus knows about the conversation even though he wasn't there. Wow. None of us has that ability in and of ourselves. So he tells Peter, he says, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect customs or poll tax? From their sons or strangers? It's just a question to reinforce a basic point. The question is, I mean, basically, is rather the answer is obvious. If you are a king and you have a son and you have strangers or aliens in your kingdom and you have a tax system, you don't expect, your, the, no one expects the king's son to pay the tax. No one expects that. It's the strangers, the foreigners who pay the tax, not the king's son of all people. The prince, if you will, doesn't pay taxes in the kingdom. So Peter says, verse 26, a king, kings of the earth, they'll collect it from strangers. And Jesus said to him, then the sons are exempt. Jesus, by this question and by this answer by Peter, is revealing something. He not only is the divine son who knows about a conversation that Peter had when he wasn't there, but Jesus is the divine son of God and therefore is exempt from the temple tax. He not only has no sins of his own that need atonement, he not only has the right to approach his father, but here is even more significant Jesus is the one, ultimately, with the Father who deserves to be worshipped at the temple. Jesus doesn't need atonement. I said in the main opening statement, the Son of God has nothing of his own to atone for. He has a unique relationship to God the Father, and he has No sin, even in his humanity, he has no sin of his own. He doesn't have to atone for being a stranger, for he is not a stranger. He is not only of the family of God, he is the only unique, begotten, beloved son, one with the Father. He has no need to pay the two drachma tax. We're learning here about Jesus' identity As the unique son of God, he has no need to make atonement, and he has every right not only to be associated with the temple of God, but to be worshipped with the Father at the temple. Peter may not realize this at the moment, but we have the whole gospel. We have the perspective looking back. Jesus is reinforcing to Peter who he is, who Jesus is, as the divine beloved son. The son has no, nothing of his own to atone for. However, he identifies with and provides for his people. The son of God has nothing of his own to atone for, but he identifies with and 
provides for, he identifies with. How does he identify with them? First of all, Jesus, the divine son of God, in becoming a man, he comes near and identifies with us and lives under the law. He's the lawgiver. He's God the Son. And yet he, in humility, in his humanity, lives as though he is subject to and under the law, willingly to honor his Father and to identify with his people, his people who are lawbreakers. And so he comes to live and identify with us as the law keeper. He identifies, and I say he identifies with. It's so interesting that he says to Peter, more about the fish in a moment, but he tells Peter to go fishing for a fish that's going to have a coin. And he says, however so, verse 27, go to the sea and give it to them for you and me. The king's son identifying with Peter and saying, okay, Peter, we'll, we'll, we'll pay the temple tax together. What? Not only does he identify with Peter, not only does he identify with us, but he provides for us. He provides for his people, his people like Peter and like me and like you, who have much to atone for and nothing with which to pay. Now, the text doesn't say maybe Peter had the funds in the house. I don't know. Maybe, maybe the funds were in the, in the disciples' uh, sack of coins that Judas was dipping into every once in a while. But Jesus wanted to teach a lesson to Peter. He wanted to reinforce something upon him. And what is the lesson? Well, we don't know the fullness of it, but Peter's been fishing his whole life. Grew up on the lake. The man has seen more fish in his lifetime than he ever wants to see. He's caught them individually. He's caught them by the hundreds. He's caught them by the thousands and the tens of thousands. The man literally is up to his knees sometimes in fish. He's around fish on the shore. He's around fish on the boat. Except sometimes we've learned in the gospel narrative, he's not around fish when he wants to catch them. There's been times when he's just, even Peter can't catch fish. Even the professional. Now, I am no fisherman, but I know that a few things. If you want to catch a fish, you don't just take a line and put a hook and drop your hook in the water and say, well, let's see if I'll catch something. You're going to be there for a while. Now, if you caught a fish, that is one dumb fish. But that's not how you go fishing. You don't just take the line you just, you have to plunk in the water. And so that's one of the things as little boys and girls, you know, that our fathers maybe need to teach us is that worm or whatever it is. And its guts got to go on the, on the worm. And you, know, you want your, your dad to do it for you or whatever. But you've got to be bait on the hook. There's no mention here. Jesus, Jesus says, go to the sea, throw in a hook. Peter's the professional fisherman. Jesus is from inland. He's telling him to just go throw a hook in the, in, the, in the sea. This is crazy. What? Who does that? Nobody. Not only do you not just throw a hook in, given that it's tax season, maybe some of you are just being reminded, oh, I forgot. <laughs> it's coming up. 
uh, I don't have a lot of tax advice. I, I, I'm not very good in that kind of thing. But one thing I, 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 I'm absolutely sure of, if you owe the IRS something, this is not a plan. Do not, I underscore, do not go out and buy a line in a hook and go up to Winnipesaukee, go fishing, hoping that you'll find your tax payment in the mouth of a fish. That's essentially what Jesus is telling Peter to do here. It's tax time. Okay, go through a line in the lake and uh, get our tax money. <laughs> it's shocking. But presumably, it works. Because there's no inference here that Peter didn't follow through. He threw that line in. He threw that hook in. And he's seen hundreds, thousands, maybe tens of thousands of fish, but he sees, he's never seen one with a coin in it. By the way, this is, this is two days' wages, so this is not like 10 cents. This is not like 10 bucks. This is a significant amount of money. This is two days' worth of work, this two drachma tax. And Peter goes and plops the line and the hook in, and there's two days' worth of labor and, and not, only, not only for Peter, but enough for Jesus, too, in the fish of a mouth, in the mouth of a fish. Incredible. The Son of God, who has nothing of his own to atone for, identifies with and provides for his people who have much to atone for and nothing with which to pay. This account is about the identity of Jesus and about our identity. He is the divine son. He has every right to be associated with the father. In fact, he is by nature one with the father. He has every right not only to worship the father, but to be worshipped with the father by his people. But as for you and me, We not only don't have the right to worship God on our own or approach him, for we are sinful. We, in and of ourselves, have nothing with which to atone for the fact that we are strangers. We are strangers to God by nature. We are far off, as Paul says in the book of Ephesians to the Ephesians, you were once were far away. That was true of the Gentiles, yes, but it was true of the Jews as well, of every man and woman who's a sinner. We are strangers by nature to God and to the worship of God, and we have nothing over which to atone for our sin. And God, in his love and mercy and kindness, sends his Son, his one and only unique Son, and the Son willingly, lovingly comes. He lives under the law, being a perfect law keeper, identifying with us. And then in his life of perfect obedience and through his suffering and the very thing that he's telling his disciples about through his sufferings and his death and his resurrection, he provides for you and me the atonement that we would never be able to pay if we fished for it for an eternity.
This is the grace of God and the grace of Jesus Christ for all who will humble themselves and admit that by nature, none of us not only can fish, but by nature, none of us can worship God or be associated with God. It is all of grace. Let's pray. We thank you, O God, for this fish story in the Bible. And we're humbled by it. We're humbled considering afresh that Jesus, who existed with you, Father, in all glory and honor, one with you, humbled himself and took on the form of a servant, of a slave, suffered, bled and died for sinners like us. Forgive us, O God, for our pride, for our assumption in these days that anyone can worship you. We're reminded this morning that we are by nature strangers. Oh, we thank you for bringing us near. Thank you, Jesus, for living for us, for dying for us. Thank you for not giving in to the criticism of Peter or the disappointment of your disciples, but knowing why you came and in love and obedience to your Father, continuing on your mission all the way through death, burial, resurrection. And what a thought that this morning that you are seated at your Father's right hand as our high priest. And that now by grace through faith in you, that we have every right to, be draw, to draw near and to be associated in the most holy and closest sense with the Holy One. We thank you. Amen.